Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Parents and principals have been left with more questions than answers as today marked the first day of new guidelines requiring children from third class upwards to wear masks in the classroom. I spoke to my son because he's one of them that's affected by the new policy and he says he didn't mind wearing it. So once he's happy, I'm happy. Well, I don't think a third class child should be sitting in a, a class with a mask on. Businesses cry out for the continuation of COVID supports to sustain them through a quiet festive season. And later, sports organisations tell a joint Oireachtas committee of the verbal and physical abuse faced by referees on and off the pitch. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, the chief medical officer says that it's still too early to conclude if the Omicron COVID variant will bring milder symptoms. His comments came as the state confirmed its first case of the new coronavirus variant of concern. Our news correspondent, Zara King, spoke to Dr. Tony Houlihan about the new variant, new tests for travel and masks for schoolchildren. It won't surprise us if further cases are identified. And our hope and ambition will be to slow down the spread of this infection while, first of all, we understand better more, uh, more about this, this disease. Is it more transmissible? Is it more severe? Do the vaccines work as well? These are key questions. And also, while we continue to roll out the booster programme, in particular to these people who are, who are vulnerable. I know this is one individual, so you won't want to identify them, but do we know, are they similar to what the ECDC is reporting in terms of mild illness and no severe illness? Uh, so we don't have good information across the ECDC in terms of severity of illness. And I think it's far too early for us to be concluding uh, in relation to whether this illness is as, as severe as Delta is or as milder than Delta. We're going to have to wait for a period of time for a number of weeks where we're able to follow up a number of these cases that have been identified around the world and look at hospitalisation rates and other important markers of infection. One of the measures being put in place obviously to prevent the spread of this variant is the idea of needing a negative COVID test to re-enter the country. But the feedback we're hearing from people is that a lot of people are going away for 24 hours, 48 hour breaks, uh, city breaks perhaps, and they're planning to get the test before they leave Ireland so that it will still be in date when they return to Ireland. Does that not sort of negate the whole point of having a negative test before you enter no, the country? No, I don't think it does. And like this is a measure that's been put in place in this country that many other European countries have not put in place. It will add further to the chance of us preventing importation of cases. It's not going to be a perfect method. We can't make the, the, the we, we can't seal the country in the sense and, and completely eliminate the possibility of, of importation of further cases. The key thing from our point of view is to put measures in place that reduce that likelihood. We think these measures in terms of uh, uh, the requirement for pre-tests before people come into the country will make a significant contribution to that. And can I just ask you in relation to masks in schools, some parents expressing concern about that? 
which of course we understand. And what we've done now is made a recommendation based on what we see in the levels of disease, particularly in the 9 to 12 year old age group, to extend the age for wearing of masks in all the settings in which we recommend masks from 12 down to 9. So that's not just in schools, it's on public transport and it's in other crowded indoor places because we have such significant levels of infection in those younger children. This infection for the most part we believe is being picked up by these children in the community. Uh, and uh, it's been particularly picked up in children between the ages of 9 and 12, as I say. And because children in those age groups are not yet vaccinated, they're the ones who are, if you like, most now vulnerable to the further spread of infection from older age groups uh, down into, into, into the under 12s, as I say, because they're not yet vaccinated. And that's Dr. Tony Hoolan speaking to our correspondent Zara King earlier. Well, I'm joined now in studio by journalist with the Irish Times, Mark Paul. Professor of Health Systems in DCU, Anthony Staines. Journalist, Larissa Nolan. And via Skype tonight by Professor Orla Muldoon from the Department of Psychology in the University of Limerick. Um, Anthony, I want to come to you briefly first on that news that we have identified, our first confirmed case of the new Omicron um, variant. We can take it that it's, while it's the first confirmed case, there are plenty more cases out there. Yeah, it's not at all surprising that has happened. And the it's going to take a while, as Dr. Hulin said, before we know both how severe this disease is and how transmissible it is. The epidemiologists are more worried about transmissibility because if it is more transmissible, cases go up exponentially day by day by day. So case numbers can rise very quickly. If it's less severe, that's good. But what drives the health service burden, what drives the health burden, is transmissibility. Looking at the South African figures, it doesn't look wildly different from Delta, but it's very early days yet. It does look more transmissible than Delta in Gauteng. Mm. But the, the, the dynamics in South Africa are not the same as here. So it could go either way for us. We could be lucky or we could be unlucky. Okay, we'll have to see um, where that goes from here and it, indeed as the weeks go on, what happens on that one. Now I want to move on to the other big news story of the day. Minister for Education Norma Folia said that primary schools will need to adopt a practical approach over the next few days when it comes to implementing the new guidelines that require children in third class and above to wear face masks. Well earlier I spoke to principal at St Etchens National School in Kindergarten in County West Meath, um, uh, Melvin, and I asked him first about where that that guidance from the minister leaves schools? Well, my understanding of what came in yesterday is that we are, we're technically speaking, unless children have exemptions, which were very clearly laid out and they're rare, that they have to wear masks from third to sixth class um, from Monday. We had pretty good compliance today in the school. I think people thought it was common, but we did think that parents would be given the option to talk to their children and with their children and make kind of informed decisions, which I think would have been more nuanced because none of us want to be in a position come maybe Monday or Tuesday of next week of having to refuse people who want to come to school or are able to come to school, the option of coming to school because they may have, for various reasons, they may not want to wear masks or they may not want their children to wear masks. You know, I, I do think that children have been excluded from this debate and that that's a huge uh, weakness in the whole argument. I mean, children are intelligent. They listen to the news. We teach them to be critical thinkers. And I think they've been talked at and over rather than to. Um, and there's almost a kind of Dickensian feel, if we want to go seasonal about it, about what happened uh, yesterday evening at quarter past six when the emails came in. But look, we are where we are and we've got to make the most of it and school's an optimistic place and we've got to keep it like that. 
I'm sure you still have plenty of questions to ask and, and to see where this goes from here. But the minister was saying earlier that children who don't comply without a reasonable excuse will be sent home. So where does that leave you as a principal? And if there's no legal standing on this, what do you do? I, I, again, I'd like some. I'd like some really good clarity in relation to it because you know you don't want to be the school where somebody's standing outside, you know, saying, "Look at my poor child wasn't let into school today." You have to remember a lot of children as well from third to six they walk to school on their own, especially in Kinnegad with the cycle to school on their own. So it isn't that simple if a child comes into school that you can send them home because when they're when they enter the school grounds at quarter past nine or nine o'clock when we open, uh, they're in your care and you can't just tell them to wander off back home so there may be some issues around that um but, but we, we'll have to see what happens you know um next week but it is a worry you know we have enough to be worrying about and uh, it's not what we're we're programmed to do it's not what we're about we're about welcoming children and encouraging them to come to school so um i i really don't know there want to be some very clear clarity about what we can and we can't do and that was Matt Melvin, a principal there at St. Etchens School in Kinnegan in County Westmeath, speaking to me earlier. Um, Larissa Nolan, as a parent, and there's been a lot of commentary and there's been a lot of worry. Um, some have been in favour of what's happening. What do you make of, of the masking in, of children in our schools starting from today? I think it's a form of child abuse. I think that at this stage of the game to introduce uh, masks for children for seven hours a day sitting in school with their faces muzzled with something over their face and expect them to learn and be happy in a classroom. Um, to create this sense of uh, heightened anxiety to make them feel as if they are, you know, their self-worth is reduced to potential forms of infection. To prevent uh, their communication skills, their social skills, their, de their development. Uh, to do all this while at the same time um, implementing a measure overnight with no, no time for parents to plan, total disrespect to children or children's lives or how children even work. Um, when, you know, it's disproportionate, it's, it's not the only thing we had to do. It was like it, a measure like this on children, in my view, should only be done at the, at the very, very last resort. Mm. There are uh, plenty of, um, re there's plenty of research to show that it can be largely ineffective, not a hugely effective measure. And in some cases, it can be counterproductive. So this isn't an absolutely clear, crystal clear uh, decision, you know, or sorry, uh, case uh, you know, it must be done or else they won't be safe. That, that's not the case at all. They could have been doing antigen testing. They could have been doing a lot of more other things. They're in pods. The windows are open. I'm absolutely raging about it. I think it is one of the most contentious issues of the pandem pandemic so far, one of the most contentious measures. Um, and it's also one that HICWA itself, the health watchdog, uh, are um, advised against, nephew against recently, they said, you know, that, that you shouldn't mask children yeah. un, uh, un, yeah. under 13 because they fiddle with the masks and it can make things worse. So I'm, I'm completely raging about this. I'm not the only one, by the way. Yeah. The school today was, I've never seen such anger in mothers, never. Yeah. Now, the advice is there now, though. The advice has come late, but it is there now. Uh, Dr. Tony Hoolan admitting, you know, it is challenging, it is difficult, but for Sorry. public health, 
it needs to be done. It's unfortunately it necessary. Need to be done, I mean, who, who, who is deciding that it needs to be done? There's absolutely no proof or evidence there that it needs to be done. I mean, even if you look in America at the Centre for Disease Control, they found recently that it was largely uh, not a particularly significant measure. You know, a while ago we were being told, not that long ago, we were being told masks shouldn't be used at all, then masks should be used, then schools are safe, and then mm. schools are suddenly like really, really dangerous. No, you, you, when you're making a measure like this that involves children, it's not like dealing with adults. It involves children. I really think there has to be an awful lot more thought about what we are going to inflict on our children day in, day out in an educational setting. They have been through an awful lot already. This is a step too far for an awful okay. lot of parents. I wouldn't send my son into school in a mask. As it happens in my case, he has an exemption. If he didn't have an exemption, I would send him in anyway and I would protest on the street about this. I would not send him All into right. school in a mask. Okay, I want to bring Professor Orla Muldoon in on this one. Um, Professor, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, you're from the psychology department at the University of Limerick and I know you've worked with Nefert just around behavioural advice on, on, on our behaviours and, and how we can adapt and, and, and what may work for us in this pandemic. But you also have concerns about who is in the room making these big decisions. Yeah, well, I think that both your clip there and what Larissa has said demonstrates very clearly that an awful lot of what we need to do now is win people's hearts and minds. Um, whether it's children who, as the principal said, are critical thinkers and well able to articulate views, or whether it's the parents of those children. Um, and one of the things that's repeatedly happening and that's very frustrating, I think, for many of us is over the course of the pandemic, the decisions are being made by a very small group of people who aren't taking into account how these decisions might play out for. Initially, I think it was obvious, you know, how it would play out for women who, who were, you know, trying to organise childcare and uh, often work in the health system or on frontline jobs. Later, I think it became obvious that we weren't really paying attention to how migrant populations were um, interacting with vaccination, but also, you know, how housing was for people in meat factories and these really important issues. So we're making decisions really. And when I say we, I, I suppose I, I would say they are making decisions that don't include many of us and don't include the concerns that many of us have. And that isn't how you win hearts and minds. Specific. It isn't going to be possible to police this. We need, we need to find a way of getting people on board. Okay, specifically, um, I think you've pointed out, Orla, um, in an article that was, that was listing out the Cabinet COVID subcommittee who were meeting to discuss these particular measures. Taoiseach Micheál Martin, Thánis Ali of Radcar, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, met with the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and also there from Neffet was Dr uh, Ronan Glynn, Philip Nolan and Killian de Gascoon. What's missing there? Well, obviously women are missing and it's not the first time that I've pointed it out. So it's, it, I really do feel a level of frustration with this. You know, it was the same with the children's shoes tobacco. If, if you don't have a diversity of views in the room, you run the risk of pretty serious groupthink. Um, so another issue as well as gender is the issue of class. So we don't want to discourage poor children from attending school and insisting that something like a mask has to be worn may well 
may, may result in those children staying home are children from vulnerable families staying at home and increased, actually increase their risk uh, um, of, of all sorts all of right. other issues like, you know, dropping out okay. of school. Okay. Um, Mark, Paul, I'd like to bring you in on this one because this issue around groupthink and the decisions being made and then how the messaging comes about and then the fallout from it. So all the reaction from parents last night from principals and um, this lack, I suppose, of, of, of preparation, that only a few hours for children to get used to the idea. Um, there, there is a point to all of this that it hasn't really been thought through and all the different voices aren't being heard in the run-up to the key decisions being made. Well, I think you've touched on the key uh, issue there, that, that voices aren't heard. And I think what makes this kind of such an emotive issue, um, it's not necessarily the nature of, of, of the, 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 the move itself to, to, to ask children to wear masks. It's the fact that it's mandatory and it's the state reaching in over the heads of parents to tell them what's best for their children. And that's why parents get so emotive about it. Every parent. I mean, uh, Larissa's a mother. She thinks she knows best for her child and she wants to be able to make that decision for her child herself. I have children um, and I want to be able to make that decision myself. So it's the fact that it's a, it's, it's a much, it brings a much harder edge to the conversation when the government reaches okay. deep into the heart of a family and tells parents what their children have to do. Okay, um, Anthony Staines, sitting here in the middle of all this as a public health specialist, <laughs> you're looking at the infection rate. We're yeah. looking at five to 11 year olds and where the infection rate is there for that group of people. Yeah. I take it you'd say that masks are necessary at this point, would you? I'd say it's two things. The messaging has been incompetent beyond belief and not for the first time. I mean, it, there is no excuse, none for what happened. The evidence we have from the states where this has been going on for quite a long time is that children tolerate this fine. And there's a very nice paper from Cincinnati recently where different school boards have different policies. And the school boards with a policy that say children should, wear, and I notice the word should, not must, should wear masks from five up to the end of school, have lower infection rates. This is not an infection in children without consequences. A small number of children die. A lot of children get quite sick with it. We, we have this vision that you know, it flows over children. We, we've had this, in, this bizarre mantra from Neffet, which Ronan Glenn was trying to walk back uh, the weekend, saying that schools are safe. Schools in Ireland are not safe. But we're not doing anything else. So we're, we're pushing masks on children, which actually I do agree with. I think there's public health evidence for that. The voices of children were not heard. And as the head teacher said, they should have been, that that's inexcusable also. But we're not doing ventilation properly. We're not doing air filtration properly. I, I don't know if you heard Philip Nolan's discussion of the physics of air filtration this morning. It would have made the angels weep. You know, Philip, Philip I'm afraid, knows as much about physics as I do, which is profoundly disturbing because I refrain from discussing the physics of ventilation. Um, and we're all trying to wait through who are the experts in specific areas yes. and, and yes. where is the best way to yeah. go here. Yes. Um, so you're saying that masks are good, but not alone. You need to look yeah. at other things, antigen testing and close contacts. Yeah, contact what's tracing. Happening around that? Contact tracing is the baseline of all this. We, we pull contact tracing in schools. Infection rates immediately fell in schools, which is, you know, nothing to do with pulling contact tracing, it's to do with missing infections. So the truth is infections in schools are higher than we think they are because we stopped looking. 
And that's an outrage. But what would you say now to Larissa saying, so regardless of, you know, whether a child is exempt or not, she would be, you'd be sending her son in without a mask next week and that's that. Do you think that's, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's right or it should be done or should we be encouraging everyone to wear the mask or is that fair enough I, that some children don't want to, some parents don't want their children to do it? I think we need to encourage children to wear masks and encourage the children to decide. My experience with children is they generally want to do the same thing as their friends. And the evidence from the United States is clear. The evidence from Korea is clear. Masks are well tolerated mm. by children of this age group. But using the, the way the circuit, the circuit is nearly incomprehensible to a non-lawyer, but it seems, to require, it seems to be mandatory, and I don't think that's the right language. I don't think mandatory vaccination is a good idea either. Okay. Because it gets people's backs up. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is that children can tolerate an awful lot of things, including yeah. very bad things, as we know. You know, they can, they can get used to uh, bad things very quickly, unfortunately. I mean, if you look at all the children's rights people, a lot of them have spoken out against this. If you look like the Children's Rights Alliance, if you look at Barnardo's, uh, child psychologists in particular point out, I think there's a very important thing to point out that we don't know what the long-term harms are going to be. And you, nobody can say there will be none because we actually don't know this that. This is on the developmental Yeah, the developmental, psychological, and lots of other, just quality of life, uh, childhood experience, you're, you're never going to get that back. So, you know, I, I don't think that we should necessarily assume that just because children may tolerate it, that that, is, that should be normalised. Now, you know? people would say, look, you know, my kids have no um, problem with wearing it, especially in families where, say, older children who are in secondary school have been wearing them all along, and now, you know, their younger siblings are happy to get on board, maybe already in public settings, going into shops and all of that, they've already been wearing masks, mm. that the problem doesn't per se lie with the children, but maybe the parents' reticence around it. Well, I don't know. Like, I started wearing masks before anybody started wearing masks. I was wearing them right at the beginning. I was wearing these little funnel things. I've always thought uh, it was a good idea to wear a mask. But what I, what I don't think is a good idea is to, for the sake of security theatre, or to be seen to be doing something in the absence of doing all the good things that you just mentioned, that they inflict this upon children. I think we should, I honestly think we should really fight this. For that, those conversations to be had that Orla just said, maybe those children's rights advocates, those women to be there talking about this, this wasn't done properly. Um, I, I think nobody nobody thinks that it was. Okay, Orla, just on the subject of making something mandatory, although not legally backed up, but that idea that has come from the guidance from the Department of Education that essentially, unless you've got that exemption, um, that if you decide you don't want to wear it, well, you'll, you, a mask, you'll be sent home from school. Where does that leave parents? Where does that leave the whole in this together idea? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
And indeed, where does it leave teachers who are trying to support learning and then all of a sudden they become people who are policing whether or not kids are wearing masks? I think it doesn't leave us in a very strong place with the notion that we're all in it together because, of course, everybody needs to to comply with the with all of the restrictions. But one of the things I would say, just as a follow-up to um, Anthony Staines there, is that generally speaking, we know from social science that when people roll out personal responsibility or individual action, it's generally to camouflage a systems failure. So I think what we have here is a very classic example of sort of now it's you know, it was previously personal responsibility for adults. This is a version of personal responsibility being foisted onto children. But in fact, we haven't had the systems level intervention that we would expect around things like ventilation, filtration, track and trace, antigen testing. So it's it, to be very cynical about it, it can feel sometimes like it's this cheap option or the easy option is being foisted onto people rather than the real changes that need to be made to make our schools safe. Yeah. Um, Mark, Paul, like where do we go from here on this? Because we know that the government have said, and I feel this is a sense of not just around schools, but around everything. Let's have a regroup, rethink about this over Christmas, over the break and see where we're going next year. What do you think needs to, to happen? Because so much has been made around the messaging, around the uncertainty, getting people on board, the buy-in that's there, that people feel that perhaps NEF at the government have lost the room at this point. But we still have those COVID cases and the government are desperate to get them down. Well, look, I, I think if you look at a lot of different strands around this, I think we're possibly moving into a new phase of government decision making and, and, and the way in which decisions are made. And they seem to be coming a little bit more heavy handed. It's not just making masks mandatory for children. It's also if you look at some of the travel rules that they brought in, I mean, PCR tests um, for people coming in from the UK, for example. Um, you also you look at Ursula von der Leyen, um, um, the, the, the head of the European Commission today, saying that mandatory vaccination should be brought in, um, not just in Ireland, but internationally, governments are becoming a little bit more heavy handed in decision making and that's a new phase and it'll be interesting to see how the public reacts to it I mean I mean you know you already mentioned this whole are we all in it together but are we all in it together and then we're told what to do that's a different phase yeah. of the pandemic mandatory vaccines I mean you would be a big proponent as, as many people would of yeah. of vaccination yes. rollout um, and the benefits that brings but making them mandatory as has been only, hinted only at by Ursula von der Leyen only for healthcare workers I think I do actually think all healthcare workers should be required be vaccinated to protect our patients because that's our responsibility. But I think we, I think people should be offered vaccination, supported to get vaccination, encouraged to get vaccination. But I'm, I think mandatory vaccination, you know, except in genuinely extraordinary circumstances, should we should not try not to go there. Would, would, would you see an issue with that mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers, Larissa? Um, well, I don't think we need to doing, bring any mandatory vaccinations into Ireland because we're nearly there already with the 100%. So what are we going to do? Mandatory, set down the last 4% or 5% and, you know, jab them. Um, uh, for, for healthcare workers, I think when you're going into um, separate um, industries or, or jobs, that's a different issue because maybe the person then can be moved into another part if they're not in the front line or whatever like that. I don't, I don't know. I don't agree with anything being mandatory. I just think 
think Ireland at this stage has become a country where you know uh, if it's not um, if it's not forbidden or if it's not compulsory or what's that phrase if it's not forbidden it's mandatory we're um, we're kind of going into that into that phase which is what you're what you're talking about now I think that has to be resisted at, at, at all costs uh, every element of it um, what happened today with the schools was abnormal and I hope we kind of you know cling back some sort of normality as we go into the next year yeah Orla just on that point about needing more voices and different voices there do you think that's something that could actually be achieved I listed out all those men that were in that room uh, the gender equality issue is a big one it's not just that it's diversity across the board really in, in these key decisions that are affecting every single one of us yes yes and I think one of the things that's going to have to be looked at in time is um, NFET in particular and how that committee was appointed because there are very few committees in this country that aren't uh, pray to the public appointment system and I don't think I think that because they were in a hurry at the time um, people were uh, placed onto the committee and that's the kind of thing that gives rise to group think that combination of putting people like you on the committee and high feelings of threat um, so I really do think that 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 is something that's going to have to be looked at. Um, and I think voters, there's uh, like Larissa, there's going to be very many angry women in this country. I think uh, women voters in particular, I think are likely to take a, a strong tack at the next election um, to increase the number of women in the room. It feels as if we have gone back a couple of decades in terms of gender equality. So I would question why it was on multiple occasions, none of the men in that room thought that this was a problem. And in, in fact, I find that deeply disappointing that they didn't think it was a problem because I thought we were past that in this country. OK, well, we can see um, that the debate certainly rolls on around it and the implementation of all those measures and, and who they're affecting. And my thanks to Larissa Nolan, Professor Anthony Staines and Professor Orlan Muldoon, who joined us tonight via Skype. Mark Paul will be staying with us. And after the break, the hospitality industry says the timing couldn't be worse as the employment wage subsidy scheme begins to wind down. Welcome back. Now, from today, the employment wage subsidy scheme gradually begins to wind down, but businesses have been calling for the supports to continue at their full rate, given the impact that recently imposed restrictions have had on the sector. Business journalist with the Irish Times, Mark Paul, is still with us in studio, as is Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, who's joined us. But first, I'd like to go to Anthony Gray, proprietor of Ale of Vaughan and Hooked Restaurants in Sligo. Thanks for joining us tonight, Anthony. Um, what do you make of this decision that's come today at a time when you would have been gearing up for a pretty busy festive season, I imagine? How's all that going and what will the decision today to cut that wage subsidy scheme mean for you and your business? Well, as a restaurant bar and ONT business in Sligo and employing nearly 45 people, it's going to have a detrimental effect on our businesses. Like to cut it down to 42%, and, 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 and just do it is, is not fair in our industry based on absolute total decimation. Like this is our second Christmas that we've had total decimation. Not forgetting the fact that we were closed at three o'clock on Christmas Eve last year. But I've lost two and a half thousand bookings in between both businesses. And there's restaurants over the length of breadth of this country, little small, tiny restaurant cafes that are going from 
um, hand-to-mouth daily trying to survive. And if you cut this at this moment in time, it's just going to be the, the life drained out of these little small businesses. And it's like the ship is sinking, but yes, the government are sailing off in the lifeboats. And it's just not fair. It's not right. Why are people saying they're, they, they are cancelling those bookings? What are they saying to you? Well, once the CMO came out and said, you know, to reduce so, social contact, I actually watched the phone and I watched the internet. And within, I'd say, a, within maybe a half an hour, the phone started to ring and then the email button started to come in. And again, I don't think it's very fair that, that somebody should come out and have this detrimental effect on the businesses well, actually, in fact, based on we've done safety chapters, we're fully ventilated. We I've served thousands of people over the summer, fully opened, and we haven't had one case. No more than that, we haven't had one case within the restaurant. So it's it's not very nice when that comes out. And there is no scientific evidence to prove that this is going on. And when something comes out like this, it has an absolutely devastating effect on our industry. Not only that, it's a snowball effect. It affects taxi drivers, it affects hairdressers, it affects musicians. Like, it's just been totally decimated. The Christmas industry is completely gone. And if they pull the EWSS, it's just going to absolutely destroy us altogether. But we're, we're on survival mode as it is. Okay, Barry Ward, Anthony makes a fair point that we're getting this public health advice to cut down on our social contacts, to not go out as much to make decisions about meeting one group and then not meeting other friends. And at the same time, those supports that are in place for businesses that are struggling are being cut. Yeah, he does make a fair point, and I know how difficult it is for small businesses, for hospitality business, particularly in my own area, places like Blackrock, Monkstown, where you have a big restaurant trade. I know how difficult it is for them, and it's really unfortunate. The reality is, however, all of the government advice is based on scientific advice from experts in this field. So when Anthony says he's not sure that the scientific proof that there is, we know that the increased contact increases the spread of the disease as well. So the government has to step in. But there is a whole range of supports there. It's not just the EWSS, there's a whole range of other ones. But you're saying the government has to step in when it hears this, you know, evidence that we have an increase in cases. We need to make a decision on this. So can the government step in and say, right, well, maybe the decision to cut the wage subsidy scheme, it's not such a great idea now? Well, the the EWSS is the second biggest financial intervention by the government in the history of the state, the the other one being the banking guarantee. So it's an enormous amount of money. It has cost over 5.5 billion euro to date. So the the investment is massive and nobody has fought as hard for small businesses as this government has. And we have done everything we can to make sure that they were able to come back when restrictions were lifted. So the the, the whole idea behind the EWSS was to protect employment. It is estimated that had it not been in place, we would be at 50% unemployment today instead of 7%. That doesn't mean it's easy for businesses, but it is part of a whole range of, of supports that are still there that include things like tax warehouses and commercial water waivers and things like that. It, it's not going to be easy for anyone, but tomorrow Neffet will give a letter to the government in terms of its vice arising from, advice arising from what we now know after that, you know, if it's the case that more extensive restrictions are come in place, I certainly hope the government will look at this. But at the same time... These so for su- now, all those cancellations and all the restaurants that have been affected, they'll just have to put up with that. And if there's going to be... What, more restrictions? I mean, we, Well, no, what I'm saying is that if NEF advises more restrictions and the government decides to implement, then of course 
I hope that the government will look at that again. But at the same time, you must remember, when you talk about the sums of money involved in these supports, they cannot continue indefinitely. Okay. At the moment, they're due to conclude in April. They have to start winding down. There is no good time to reduce the supports for, for okay. small businesses, and we know how hard it is, is for them. Is there no good time? I mean, if you don't do it now and you leave it to, say, January or February, Mark, like, that's a very tough time for the industry, isn't it? Look, look there's no good time, but there, is, there are some really, really bad times, and this is a really, really bad time to reduce um, 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 the, the wage subsidies. Um, I, I think the publicans and the restaurateurs and the hotelers, they really do have a point this time, because the entire basis upon which the decision was made to start a taper limit this time, that was made when we thought we were going to be open and and, and ready to go free on October 22nd, that basis has changed. So I don't think the government should wait until um, there's more restrictions brought in, more public health restrictions, and then maybe stop the tapering. I think the noise coming out of the parliamentary party meetings from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael this evening are that TDs are very angry about this. I know there was a motion put down at the Fianna Fáil party meeting. Which was passed, in fact, to reverse those cuts. Which, which was passed at the Fianna Gael meeting, it was discussed. The government has really left itself open to criticism on this because um, it's also a political misstep because um, um, it's left itself open to criticism that it, it, it's, it's you know, sort of uh, uh, just ignoring the wishes and the, the fears of SMEs. Okay, well, and, and SMEs are like the baby children of the business world. I mean, you don't mess around with SMEs, you know? Yeah, what about, what about that wage bill um, that Barry alluded to there? So last month, 25,900 employers availed of the scheme yeah. to supplement wages of their staff at a cost of 52.7 million for one month alone. It's a lot of cash, but look, it's still paying the wages of three, of, you know, or, or part paying the wages of about 300,000 workers and um, are still reliant on it. And in those sectors, the reason why their wages are being subsidised is because those sectors are still in real difficulty and, you know, people are being told not to go out. Um, so, so I think the wage subsidies are, be, are being paid because they're needed, but it just goes to show that it's easy to bring in subsidies. It's really, really hard to take them away because they're a kind of a painkiller, not a cure, but there's always withdrawal symptoms when you try and take away painkillers. Yeah, Anthony, would there ever be a good time, um, would you say, to remove uh, the scheme, remove the supports that are in place for you and others? Listen, there's always a good time to remove them, but not not now. Not when you're being totally decimated and you're looking at your book and you're going, well, actually, on the big night on the, coming up to December, you have no Christmas parties booking. Because, you know, the, the amount of scaremongering that's going on in this country at the present moment in time is absolutely ludicrous. And you have to ask a very valid point. We are 21 months into this um, pandemic. And have we actually moved on at all? I don't think so. And we are the small, as, 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 as that gentleman said, we are the backbone and the SMEs are the backbone of this industry. We need to be looked after. We need, we, we need a coherent plan and we need to stop these appalling mixed messages. Like at the end of the day, in my opinion, we have 150 ICU beds for a population of 5 million. And that is probably the reason why we have to reduce our social contact. You look at our closest neighbours, England. They've moved on. They're at football matches. There's 70,000 people yeah. in the stadium. A lot, of that, a lot of people would say, Anthony, that you can't look at what the UK have done and hold them up uh, as, as the people to follow on this. Well, you know what? I don't think personally that we have moved any any way whatsoever forward, whatsoever, since the pandemic started. Where here we are back in the same scenario again, shutting down for Christmas, nearly. And and scaremongering that's going on, it's not right. It, and you know what? The sooner this country has an election, 
and, and, and the people come out and look for true leadership, the better. Okay, well, look, you can hear there, Anthony, uh, the, uh, Barry, uh, the frustration that Anthony has. He's really worried in the run-up to Christmas. Like, this is a big time, traditionally, for those restaurants that have missed out. Uh, and not just that, like, businesses up and down the country that have missed out so much because of the pandemic, and this was to be their time. Yeah. And now, cancellation upon cancellation, and they're left with these fewer government supports but, in place. But you see, I absolutely acknowledge that. And as I say, I deal with small businesses every day. I'm a self-employed person myself, so I understand how difficult it is. Wouldn't it be a Never move, though, by the government, you know, at this point. We see it's got parliamentary party support, for example, in Fianna Fáil tonight, that there is a lot of disquiet well, over well, that. I must say, say, let's pause. I think they're getting a bit ahead of themselves because we don't know what the advice will be in terms of what has to happen in the coming weeks before Christmas, for example. So now, you, you, think right, something, you think there needs to be further restrictions? No, no, I, I certainly didn't say that Bef at all. No, but before but like, something like the EWSS is cut? No, no, I'm not saying that. No, in fact, I think the reality is we cannot continue to pay the bill for the EWSS and all the other supports that are in place. And Anthony talks there about, he says there aren't supports. I can give you a list of 10 supports that are in place for small business, from restart grants to wage waivers to tax warehousing, etc. None of it makes it easy for them. It makes it easier. As Mark says, it's not a cure. It's, okay. it's a treatment. But at the same time, we cannot continue to fork out that money if we're to be a responsible government, never mind a clever one. Hey, we'll have to leave it there. Um, my thanks to Anthony Gray and Mark Paul. Senator Barry Ward will be staying with us. And after the break, Ireland's largest sporting organisations tell Narokthus Committee of the unsustainable abuse that's facing referees. Welcome back. Well, today, representatives from the FAI, the GAA, the IRFU and the Irish Soccer Referees Society told the Joint Committee on Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media of the wide-ranging and unsustainable abuse that's being faced by referees in this country. In studio to discuss is Vice President of the Irish Soccer Referees Society, Sean Slattery, and Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward is still with us. And Sean, I want to come to you on this. You were um, in front of that committee giving evidence about, about what, you, what you've gone through, you and your, your members. Um, has it gotten that bad that you need that sports bodies need to come before a dull committee to, pl to play this out, to tell of, of the abuse that's happening in the game? I think it has, and it's, uh, it's, it's good to see the doll taking an interest and in coming at it from that angle, you know, and uh, various codes were represented there today, but um, there has been a lot of media spotlight recently on it, but it does need attention, and this will certainly help with that, and uh, we're hoping that maybe the government were wondering maybe things that they can do. We think that maybe they can help with things like when assaults are reported, maybe to, to the Gardaí, a lot of them aren't because of the time lag as well it takes with the judiciary. A case might take 12, 13 months before it's from the time it's reported to the time it's heard. So we're hoping that maybe the state can look at maybe seeing if they can help us with things like that. Tell us, if you will, about the more serious case of, of abuse that we heard about today. Um, They'll shock people. A lot of people go to sporting occasions, they go to support their team. They may not really understand how much abuse that you guys face on the pitch week in, week out yeah, and yeah. off it. Well, off the pitch, we had one of our members last week was uh, threatened in the car park, um, getting into his car, getting after a game. Someone actually mentioned that they'd, they'd kill him, uh, an adult. And uh, that was mentioned. That's reported to the Gardaí. Another one got an anonymous phone call saying he'd be knifed at his next match. That was reported to Gardaí as well. Again, we do stress again that there are, thankfully, in a tiny minority of instances, but um, 
we surveyed our members nationwide this week, the branches, and we asked them for some more feedback mm -hmm. on updates. And a lot of them would have said that they would, the abuse has gone up, the levels of abuse have gone up, and there have been matches abandoned in a good few counties since the start do, of the season. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the abuse has gone up so much? Well, we mentioned before that um, a lot of it seems to be going unpunished when it is reported by referees and, uh, you know, the disciplinary committees of some leagues aren't using the full force that's available to them with the FAI regulations. And that's what we'd like to see, the actual sanctions that are in place being used fully. We're not looking for new sanctions. Yeah, this is the key point, isn't it, Barry, that there are sanctions in place, there are policies in place, there are disciplinary proceedings, but they're being ignored. Yeah, my colleague Alan Dillon, who's the vice chair of that committee, was calling for greater action on those procedures today. And the FAI and the IRFU and the GAA were before the committee and they all have procedures in place. But the notion that these people call themselves supporters and yet are abusing referees who are volunteers, people without whom games cannot happen, is to me a nonsense. And we cannot tolerate people behaving this way. It destroys sport, it destroys the participation in sport. And very often it happens even at junior level. And, and Sean and I were talking about this earlier it is so nonsensical if you've got a kid in a match or a child in a match and you're abusing the referee you're sending out all the wrong messages that's just going to make it worse and worse and worse so it is up to the associations to take serious action against this uh, and the GAA and rugby mentioned that online abuse is a particular problem yeah, and it's, it's every bit as bad. So obviously there is a range from physical to verbal, but online as well. All of it is bad. All of it has the same effect. It discourages volunteer referees from getting involved. And as I say, without those referees, the games cannot take place. So they are destroying the operation of the various associations. And okay, so w what happens now? I mean, this has been brought to your attention. It's been brought in, in the dull spotlight, if you like. And we're hearing all these stories, this abuse, threats to kill, and yet nothing being done. So what happens when it goes to Leinster House? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, I think we need to make sure that the associations have the supports they need to implement their regulations and take action against these, against these people. But Sean's also saying that cases are reported to the Gardaí, but not nearly enough of them. So you have far more incidents of this kind of thing happening, but it's not reported to the Gardaí because of intimidation or, or people feel that they can't do that. We need to make sure the Gardaí are in a position to act on it as well, because what we're talking about is criminal activity. In no uncertain terms, it is assaults, it is harassment, and it needs to be dealt with at that level as well. Yeah, and what are the difficulties around, you know, if you put your legal hat on, the difficulties about uh, prosecuting um, supporters who are not, say, members of a club, random spectators? Well, there shouldn't be a difficulty as long as you can identify them. Obviously, if you can't identify a perpetrator, it makes it more difficult. But I think that's a relatively rare occurrence because people are connected. Either, even if they aren't members of the pub, they would, uh, club, they would be known to people who are involved in the club. The difficulty is if you don't have somebody who makes the complaint to the guardie, the guardie can't act. So if they don't have somebody saying, this threat was issued to me or this, this no, assault... No, but complaints are being made to the guardie. That's what but we're not, hearing. But not in all of the cases and not in a lot of the cases. And, and do you think more and more of your members are talking to authorities about this, bringing it to guard their attention, or is there still an issue around that? There's still an issue. I would say 90% of the assaults aren't reported. And why is that, Sean? Again, there would be, sometimes there would be fear of maybe possible recriminations, but also when, when by case... By the individual by, who, by who individuals abused people, the referee? Yeah, it could be, could be that way. And um, it would also... Sometimes when they are brought, it can, from the initial reporting of an incident, it could be, it might be seven or eight months more before it gets to the next stage. 
you know, with yeah. the, so someone even going to court could take a year and a half. So what would you briefly like to see happen now on, on foot of, of that briefing you gave in front of the door today? Well, hopefully we gave them some food for thought about what's, what's out there, what the real problems are and um, we're hoping then that maybe they can come and be of assistance to us and we, had, we did also mention as well if possible maybe to get some uh, professional help for members who have been assaulted, maybe the state could help out maybe with the counselling, professional counselling. We have, we have some available, but not on a, not on a big level, you know. Maybe okay. that's something small that could help with it. OK, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, that is it from us. My thanks to Sean Slattery, to Barry Ward and all of tonight's guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.